Welcome to the second episode of the Into the Hopper podcast. I'm joined by a very special guest who you have almost certainly heard of, uh, perhaps from his 2015 masterpiece, Data Science from Scratch, published by O'Reilly, or his 2016 masterpiece, Fizz, Buzz, and TensorFlow, published on his blog, or his 2017 masterpiece, Live Coding uh, Neural Networks on YouTube, or perhaps his uh, 2018. 18 foray into live coding the advent of code project or even perhaps his 2019 masterpiece data science from scratch second edition published by o'reilly or now even from his 2020 masterpiece fizz the fizz buzz book meditations on python mathematics science engineering and design and if you haven't heard of him from any of those maybe you've heard of him from his uh i don't know if i'll call it a masterpiece at joel Gruse on Twitter, uh, which is, is a uh, sight to behold. I, I, I can't believe you didn't mention the Jupiter notebooks talk. Oh, I actually had that on my list. And, uh, I think that was also 2018 cause I, I thought something disappeared from 2018. So I added the advent of code, but yes, the, of course I don't like notebooks, uh, famously, uh, rocking the, the Jupiter world, which I actually had a response talk to that sadly wasn't recorded, but uh, everyone should go watch that talk and all these all these resources, except maybe uh, Data Science from Scratch First Edition. It's funny. I don't I I don't think of like my life or career in those terms, but I do have this deep feeling inside uh, about gotta stay fresh, gotta produce new content, gotta get known for something new, and and so so I think your list kind of um, you know reinforces that. That, and that only goes back to 2015. It doesn't include your days of uh, being an Excel author and things like that. Uh, I didn't do much interesting before 2015. So. <laughs> well, which I think is around when you met me. So I, there's there's something there. Exactly. I, I, we'll have to do one of those uh, causal diagrams and figure out exactly how it works. <laughs> so by day, you are a, a software engineer, former data scientist, and maybe uh, also manager sometimes now these days. That's right. I work at a company called Capital Group, which is a large investment firm. Um, and I lead a small team that's basically focused on building data and machine learning solutions to business problems. So it's it's really sitting at the intersection of software engineering. So we're actually building systems and doing software engineering and data science and that we're actually coming up with machine learning models to solve problems and, and training them and collecting data sets and labeling data and all of it. We're kind of a, you could think of us as a, a tiny end-to-end data science org or, or full stack data science or whatever the trendy term is these days. You, you have to call it machine learning engineering if you want to be trending, trendy. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it that because it's much, it's much broader than that. It, it's almost like... Um, a third, what people might call machine learning engineering, a third, like outright software engineering. Like yesterday, I was mucking actually with Apache configs, if you can believe it. Um, and then a third, you know, more pure data science. So all these other things you just do on your free time, you you uh, write and make videos in your free time? Those are my hobbies, basically. So I had a kid. Um, so, so this is really where, where the causality comes from. Uh, my daughter was born in 2011. And before she was born, I spent most of my free time watching TV and reading library books about nothing in particular. Uh, and when she was born, uh, I basically turned off the TV and disconnected the cable um, and tried to spend a little bit more time with her. But there's really a limit to how much time I can spend with a baby. And so I kind of replaced my TV and library book habit with a Coursera habit, uh, which eventually became, you know, a writing and coding. And I don't want to say a blogging habit because I write one blog a year, but um, 
you know, coding and, and building things have it. And I, I have said on, on more than one occasion, I wish I could write and speak and make videos like you with the level of uh, both technical competence, but then uh, you have a, a creative style that is uh, unparalleled in, in my perspective, not to uh, puff you up too soon in this uh, podcast, but you, you are, uh, your style is very unique. Is there, is there a, someone who's motivated you there? Or is that just how that's developed in your own work? Um, so uh, it's funny. I, when I was in high school, I did not enjoy writing. I didn't like English class. When I was in college, I would kind of go out of my way not to take classes that involved, you know, term papers or, or giant essays or things like that. And I really was, was not into writing. Uh, I didn't think I was particularly good at it. Um, and, and I didn't enjoy it. And, and so my joke is that I've had two writing teachers in my life. Um, one, was the live journal. And, you know, from the years, let's call it 2001 to 2006 or so, I was pretty, I was pretty into live journal and my circle of friends were all pretty into live journal. And I wrote a lot there. Um, and writing for other people in somewhat long form really, you know, gave me an opportunity to hone my writing style. Um, and, and I just, I wrote a lot. And that, that's sort of where I found my voice as kind of a long form writer. Um, and then it kind of faded out. It got bought by a Russian company. Everyone abandoned it. And then Twitter became a thing. And, you know, I went through and like deleted all my old tweets recently. And my early tweets were not interesting. They were, they were boring. They had not much style. And so then Twitter uh, was sort of a learning experience again. Now here's how I write uh, in very short form. Uh, and, and so I'd say between LiveJournal and Twitter, those were sort of the two kind of the, the two writing teachers, if you will, that were most formative on the way that, that I write. That's interesting. I, I uh, wonder how many writers would attribute uh, Twitter as to helping them become better writers. So back in 2016, you wrote this blog post of FizzBuzz in, in TensorFlow, which is um, the story of, of someone in a job interview asked this classic question of FizzBuzz and implementing it in a unique way by uh, training a neural network. And that uh, post really blew up. And I mean, people still talk about it to, to this day. And uh, it, it's very funny. And I, I, if I'm correct, you you have people ask you all the time if that was a true story. Is, isn't that right? Um, all the time is an overstatement. But yeah, uh, you know, with some regularity, I, I get asked that. So a few months back, you uh, said to me, uh, you messaged me and said, hey, I've, I'm writing a book on FizzBuzz. I think you'll like it. And uh, you, you asked me to look at the manuscript, and uh, I started reading and, and reading and reading and pretty quickly messaged you, this is incredible, I, I wish I had written it, or, or something like that, which has become one of your uh, marketing lines for the book. And it, it really has blown me away in the way in which you combine, well, the, the, the subtitle is... Um, Meditations on Python, Mathematics, Science, Engineering, and Design. And it seems to me when you find books on any one of those topics that are trying to merge different aspects, it tends to be good at one and, and maybe passable on the other. But I think one of your unique contributions in this book, and I guess it's not totally unique, but I, I have not seen many other things like it, is you combine those different topics at a very competent level. So you talk about math, but you actually also understand Python and, and, and modern Python in particular and the way Python is used. H how did that come to be? I mean, th that 
I guess in some ways it's just a, a combination of your your last 20 years of your career and interests? So I wrote this book, Data Science from Scratch. Um, and, and one of the things, uh, and so the premise of that book is that basically we're going to learn data science, but we're going to learn it by implementing things from first principles in Python. So we're not going to use NumPy. We're going to use Python lists as our vectors. And we're going to implement linear regression by actually writing the code to do linear regression on these arrays that are lists. And we're going to learn how to do decision trees by actually writing the code to take a data set and build a decision tree on it and, and things like that. Um, and, and the reason that approach resonated with me, uh, there, there's kind of two reasons. One is... Uh, because I, I was a math person. I studied math. I went to math grad school. And within mathematics, there's this kind of aesthetics where you should not use things unless you have proved them and understand them. So you should not be allowed to use a theorem in a class unless the class has already proved that theorem. Um, and for better or for worse, that's kind of a mindset that stuck with me. Um, the other is that back in, call it probably 2012, when Andrew Ng launched the first uh, machine learning class, which was, I think, one of the, one of the very first uh, MOOC uh, you know, online classes, um, he did this presentation using kind of gradient descent as the organizing principle for the class and implementing everything in Octave. And Octave it has its own set of problems, like it crashes all the time. But anyway, that approach uh, to learning machine learning really resonated with me as well. Um, and, and I think I took a lot of influence from that. And so when I sat down to write this book, Data Science from Scratch, I didn't want to make it a math book, um, but I somehow needed to include the mathematical concepts in it, you know, in, in order to explain all the things we're implementing. And so I thought for a long time about how can I best use Python uh, as a language to demonstrate mathematical concepts. Um, and, you know, in the first edition, I did an okay job of this. And for the second edition, I really went through with, uh, with a very fine tooth comb and thought about this once more, which is that I want to demonstrate a concept using code. Uh, and, and so how do I need to structure my code in a way that best demonstrates that concept? And so that's everything from, you know, which Python idioms do I want to use? How do I want to call my variable names? How do I want to break things into functions? And so writing the second edition of that book involved uh, a lot of very deep pedagogical thought around how do I use code to illustrate these kind of mathematical ideas? And, and so that's something where... Um, Let's say I've probably given that particular subject more thought than most people. And as a result of that, uh, you know, I like to think I'm actually pretty good at using Python code to illustrate ideas and to say, here, to say, here's, here's the actual code that I want to run. Now, how am I actually going to structure it so that it's most readable in the context of between these two paragraphs in a book? And, and that's a skill that I would say took a lot of practice. Um, and then, you know, apart from that, I, I write a lot of Python, so, I, so I'm pretty familiar with all the various idioms as well. I think that's that's worth emphasizing again. It's 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 not just using Python to illustrate math, but it's using what's considered to be good idiomatic Python, whether people like it or not. I mean, it, what, what you're doing is um, the very... Um, modern accepted way to, to do Python. And I, I remember, so you have these, this video series of, of live coding a neural network where you show how to implement backpropagation to train a neural network uh, live coded. And you had jokingly said on Twitter a while back in response to someone's question about the best way to learn type hinting in Python, that the best way was, or a way was to watch your live coding and neural networks uh, talks, which I did. And I was like, oh, 
wow, I, I think I understand this <laughs> new way that Python is allowing you to think about types. And um, so you are have these uh, videos and, and books that have a different focus, but then at the same time, I'm learning more about a language that I've been using every day for almost 10 years. That's one of the curious things about the book and, and why, I, I, why it's unusual as a book, right? So, you know, the book's called 10 Essays on FizzBuzz, and each essay or chapter is one solution to FizzBuzz, and then, you know, 10 pages of explanation and or digression and or thoughts about some aspects of that solution and, and why it works and, and what it inspires in me. Um, and like, I think it's a really cool book, but it's also like, that's a really weird structure for, for a technical book, right? You know, most, most technical books are, this is a book about Python and you would read it if you want to learn about Python, or this is a book about SQL and you'd read it if you want to learn about SQL, or this is a book about deep learning and you would read it if you want to learn about deep learning. But there's probably not a lot of people out there who are thinking, you know what, I want to learn about FizzBuzz, and therefore I'm going to go out and purchase a book or read a book on FizzBuzz. Like that's just, uh, it doesn't work that way. And, and so I, I say in the introduction, you know, this is a book that you will probably learn a lot by reading, but it's not a book that you would read to learn anything in particular. And that makes it kind of strange as a technical book. Like I, it's hard to think of very many technical books that are that are like that, which, which is sad because I think it's a it's a cool idea for a technical book. If there's something in particular, I think you would read it to learn. I would say it is uh, problem solving with algorithms, math, and Python is the thing to learn because you're taking one silly problem that's given in job interviews and you're saying, here are 10 plus ways to look at this problem. And it helped me as someone who spends a lot of my days solving problems with code. It helped me um, uh, realize that the, the one naive solution or maybe the second solution you get with a little bit more thought aren't necessarily the only ways to tackle a problem. And in fact, you have wildly varied solutions from, uh, well, I mean, you, you start off the book saying one way to solve FizzBuzz is to just naively print uh, these numbers. Actually, I, I guess it'd be worth uh, stating in case anyone doesn't know uh, the FizzBuzz problem. Would you mind just stating that quickly? Yeah. So FizzBuzz is the problem uh, where you're asked to do the following. Uh, you need to print the numbers from one up to a hundred, except if the number is divisible by three, uh, then instead of printing the number, you print fizz. If the number is divisible by five, instead of printing the number, you print buzz. And if it's divisible by 15, instead of printing the number, you print fizzbuzz. And, and so the story goes that this was like a children's game to teach them about mathematics, where they would sit around in a circle and go around saying the numbers, but substituting fizz or buzz or fizzbuzz as appropriate. And um, then it became, it's a pretty easy problem to solve if you're a, a, a decent programmer. And so it, get, it gets asked in interviews sometimes to weed out people who don't actually know how to write code. And then because of that, it, it sort of, is known as the stereotypical bad question to ask uh, if you want to check someone, you know, if they meet some lowest common denominator bar. So, so you have solutions from, well, I mean, as I said, introducing the book, you could just print all the the values, um, and then you you explain kind of a, a a traditional solution. But then you have solutions that involve things like uh, trigonometry, uh, random number generation. Um, and you 
conclude the book with the um, TensorFlow example, uh, a linear algebra example. Um, I mean, there, there are all kinds of uh, wildly different solutions from a mathematical and algorithmic perspective that I think um, most of us don't take the time to think about the possibilities for problems being solved that way. And that, I mean, in some ways that's good. You don't, these aren't solutions you would probably want to use in real life, uh, but it helps, it helped me think about the the breadth of possibilities of solving a pretty simple problem. Yeah. It's funny, you know, I, I never gave the problem itself that much thought until I wrote that blog post and, and you know, when I wrote the blog post, I just chose it because it was such a well-known problem. Um, and then after, after, I wrote that and it went sort of viral. Um, you know, people would ask me questions about it. I gave a few talks about the FizzBuzz and TensorFlow solution. Um, and then somehow this notion of FizzBuzz got stuck in my mind. And occasionally I'd be thinking about something else. And I would just realize that what I was doing was another way to solve FizzBuzz. And so, so I started kind of casually collecting a few other solutions. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't blog about them because I didn't want to write I don't want to be the guy who writes blog posts about FizzBuzz all the time, but I would tweet about them um, when I found interesting ones. And someone on Twitter was like, you should write a book about all these. And I thought, well, you know, at that point I had maybe four or five. And and so I had to sit down and, and think, can I really come up with like a serious number of these and come up with interesting things to say about all of them to kind of make this into a book that people would want to read. So it was a, I like, it was a, it was a challenge, but it was kind of a fun challenge. I don't want to spoil um the book by really talking through all the different chapters, but I, one that I thought was particularly fun was the random number generation one. Would you be interested in describing uh, at a high level how you used random numbers to, to generate FizzBuzz? Yeah. So that's actually one of the, like of all the solutions in the book, that's kind of the most, uh, that's the least me in, in the sense that I learned about it from uh, a stack overflow post actually. Um, not not the exact details of the solution, but but about the idea of doing it, um, and and the code is my own personal you know approach to it. But but the idea behind it is basically that when you have a random number generation in programming languages, most of the time, like in the Python random module, it's not actually generating random numbers; it's generating what are called pseudo random numbers. So they're actually deterministic starting from some seed. So in Python, you can set a random seed and then you'll always get the same sequence of uh, numbers coming out after that. Um, and, and then it's also the case that, you know, in, in an earlier chapter, we explored this idea that um, the the pattern of the correct FizzBuzz outputs repeats in this cycle of 15. And, and so if you know 15 correct solutions in a row, then you kind of know all the solutions. And, and, and a number of the solutions actually play off this, off this idea of the cycle of 15. Um, but what that means is that if you have a random number generator that can generate the correct 15 random numbers in a row, um, then you can use draws from that random number generator to quote unquote solve FizzBuzz. And then it's just a matter of you know, framing the problem in that way and doing a search across all the random number seeds until you find one that gives you that cycle of 15 that you want. We, we take random numbers for granted, but that really shows something about the, the subtlety of pseudo num- pseudo random number generation. It's a, it's a very surprising solution when you read the code because you, you think, how could that work? There's no, right. there's no test for, there's no ifs, there's no tests for divisibility, there's nothing. There's just a bunch of calls to random.choice. 
And, and so, the, so the fact that something like that works is pretty surprising on the face of it until you really unpack what's going on. Yeah. The structure of, of uh, repeating after 15 and being related to the factors of the numbers made me wonder if you could come up with some kind of um, like group theoretic approach for generating this, which I, maybe is, is analogous to what you do in your uh, matrix um, theory chapter and chapter nine. But I, I did spend a little time thinking about could you construct like a group or maybe a group with some extra operation that could you could just like multiply something by itself and generate the fizzbuzz values the closest one in flavor to that is actually probably the iter tools solution um i mean it's not using group theory per se but that's a solution that really most captures that here we have you know a generator of order five and a generator of order three and um, and we're doing something with them. No, that's a great. That's a great observation, and uh, that's a helpful. Well, all of those uh, chapters that involve uh, generators are helpful in thinking more deeply about that aspect of Python, which um, not everyone does. And actually, to that, it, something I I thought was particularly interesting, uh, really subsection in chapter six, um, you you have this little excursus on data modeling and you um, in implementing a solution, you ultimately want to use the Python named tuple um, type, uh, but you go into these, these little subsections. Why not tuples? Why not dictionaries? Why not classes? Why not data classes, which are a new aspect of, of Python? And you, uh, and this is very Python specific, but you help people think through why might you choose one of these very similar data structures in the Python language? Yeah, so I mean, when it comes to uh, Python, I'm an ideologue in a lot of ways, and I have very strong opinions about how people should and should not write Python um, that go pretty far beyond what what is considered idiomatic and not idiomatic. I mean, obviously, I think people should write Python in idiomatic ways, but but my strictures kind of go above and beyond that. So, so one is that... Uh, I use named tuples basically wherever I can, and, and they're pretty much always my choice for data modeling, uh, unless I have a really good reason not to use them. Um, and, and so it's possible that I, I stacked the deck in, in their favor a little bit um, in the book when I discussed that. But you know, hopefully, I, I was somewhat even-handed and fair. But but I, I like them a lot. The, the other one is about type annotations. And I, I love Python and type annotations. I I pretty much won't write Python without type annotations anymore. There's probably two or three examples in the book where I don't use them, either because it wouldn't have made the code fit all on one line. Uh, you, you get some pretty narrow uh, constraints in a, in a book form, or else because the, the type would have been really ugly and uh, not very illuminating. But you know, when I redid the second edition of Data Science from Scratch, one of the very deliberate decisions that I made was to include type annotations everywhere. And, you know, this goes back to the point I made earlier about thinking about how do I use Python in a pedagogical sense? And, and from my perspective, if I'm using code to illustrate a mathematical concept or, or some other kind of concept, having the types right there and saying that this function argument is a list of integers um, is part of the pedagogy and makes the code more readable and makes the 
the teaching that you're trying to communicate that much clearer. So that, that's the other way in which I kind of, you know, put my thumb on the scale. And one of the other things you do straight from the beginning is uh, write tests for your code and you share those tests as, as both a check for yourself in, in writing this, but also, again, as a pedagogical thing, which I, I think is a huge aspect of, of software testing. You know, you're right. And that's actually, that's my third, well, that's my third thing. And I did that in the second edition of Data Science from Scratch as well, which was that throughout the book, I sort of weaved, uh, you know, much more of an emphasis of we've written some code, now let's test it. And, and when you're when you're writing a book, it can be as, as simple as I've written a function, now I want to illustrate how the function gets used. Well, I can just do that using an assert statement and the expected value. And now I've both shown you how to use the function and I've written a test that it works correctly. So I think that's nice. I'm a uh, I can't remember if you used PyTest explicitly. I don't think you did. I think you just wrote tests. No, I, so I did not use PyTest explicitly. Um, but I do, I do like PyTest because it basically allows you to write tests that look like the test that you wrote, which is, this is just simple Python without a bunch of uh, imported things or big nasty classes like you have to do with unit tests. So, so I agree. And in, in real life, I use PyTest um, pretty much always. But, you know, in terms of like the flow of a book, uh, I don't think it would add to, you know, okay, now I'm going to write a t- an actual test function um, or I'm going to show running PyTest. I, I think, from again, from a pedagogical point of view, um, when the goal is to teach things rather than to show how to use PyTest, it, it's simpler to just use, you know, bare asserts. Yep. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I wrote a, I just skimmed through the book and wrote a list of some, you know, Python 3 concepts or some Python concepts that came up um, testing was one, uh, Python three. I mean, you use some modern Python three features like type hinting, um, the truthiness of values, which can be a subtle thing of in Python. Uh, you use C profile to profile some code. You talk about tail recursion, which Python doesn't optimize for and which can, can bite you if you expect it does. Um, you have a little, uh, very, very helpful section, that shows where uh, Python list copying, which can also happen with strings, can can really bite you if you don't realize that you're copying because it can do that for you. And if, if those lists get too large, that can take an enormous amount of time. You know, that was another balance that I really tried to strike in the book because um, I, w- one of my pet causes, uh, and I'm sure you've heard me go on about this, is why data scientists should really care more about things like software engineering best practices and, you know, things like foundational computer science. And, you know, some people don't agree with me. But that's fine. Not everyone has to agree with me. But but I think that's pretty true. And so what, what I did, you know, obviously, I don't want to I don't want to teach an algorithms class in, in this book. Um, and I don't want to have to go into here's the definition of big O notation and everything like that. Um, but but throughout the book, I, I, I tried to, you know, make a point of here are some code constructs that are actually very inefficient. And, and here's why. Let's actually time how long it takes to, the, to run them on an input of size 10, 100, 1,000, whatever. And you can see that like it scales really badly. And now here's some other um, you know, constructs that are much more efficient. Here's why and here's how they scale. So it was kind of you know, like a, a, a sly way of getting some analysis of algorithms type thinking into the book and get people you know, 
who may or may not be familiar with those concepts to at least consider them without having to bang them over the head about, you know, here's what O of N means, here's what O of N squared means, prove this is O of N log N, et cetera. Which is, is great for people who haven't experienced that to uh, learn how to, I mean, it's it's a largely intuitive thing at the end of the day. We, we usually aren't sitting down calculating those things in, a, in the way you learn in an algorithms class, um, but being able to think through that is a, a great skill. I'm not sure I would agree that it's, intuitive, but it's a, it's a skill you can pick up, right? Um, and, you know, one of the things that I do have it in the book is that there's um, this notion of code that's accidentally quadratic. So you're actually doing something expensive and you don't realize it because it feels like you've done something cheap, but based on the way that Python or whatever language has implemented it, it, it turns out to be, uh, you know, very expensive. And, and so, like, helping people not to make those kind of mistakes, I think, is pretty important. Right. And, and some of the nice syntactical things in Python really do hide that. I've been writing some Go lately, and it's it's harder to do that kind of thing and not be aware of it in a language that doesn't provide you with some of those higher level uh, syntaxes. I have a few questions from uh, some of your, uh, your fans on Twitter that I want to get to before we wrap up. Um, one was, was there a solution that you liked, but didn't provide enough material to structure a chapter around? Yeah. So in the second chapter, which is the canonical solution, the, you know, if, elif, elif, el, so just the, the way that most people would solve the problem. Um, at the very end, there's a section about what happens if you don't want to put the if statements in there. And it turns out that you can kind of hide the if statements by using uh, list.index. And it's actually a really neat trick, and I really like the solution that it gives rise to, but I couldn't really come up with like a whole other chapter's worth of material around what was a pretty small trick. So it's just sort of a bonus solution in you know, the chapter two. Something I don't think you discuss in the book is um, if you even like FizzBuzz as an interview question, is, is this something that you think is useful? Generally, I would say no. Um, I think it will tell you if a candidate has no business being there, but but I but I think if your process is good, you probably should have figured that out already. You know, in some kind of phone interview or phone screen. Um, but but I think it's such a well-known problem that you know probably most people are just going to be regurgitating an off-the-shelf solution. And to me, that doesn't tell you much other than whether they know that off-the-shelf solution. I prefer problems that you know, give me more insight into how does this person think algorithmically? How does this person model problems using language constructs, things like that? And now that's, that's not to say that there aren't ways to make it an interesting problem. Uh, you know, any problem, you can add layers onto it um, that make it more interesting. So <clears throat> in the course of doing this book, I came up with this variant where instead of divisible by three, divisible by five, divisible by 15, instead you want to print the numbers one to say a thousand and you print fizz if the number is a perfect square uh buzz if the number is a perfect cube and fizz buzz if the number is a perfect sixth power so that's it's only a slightly different problem but it's different enough that that it's actually a little bit interesting right how do you test if something is a sixth power well it's not just a modulus operator you have to think about that a, a little bit harder so so i think that's actually a neat variant now is it too much of a math problem and you're disadvantaging people who are not math people maybe it is i haven't thought about that either but in general yeah. i i would never ask fizzbuzz as a, as a interviewing question if were any of the solutions a particular favorite of yours 
I would say probably the two that are my favorites. Um, one is the Intertools solution that uses Intertools.cycle. Um, I, I think there's just something beautiful and elegant uh, about it. it. It really, it represents the structure that underlies the problem rather than representing the problem itself. So rather than having to check if something's divisible by three, instead we construct something that happens every you know, every three instances. And so it, it, I like inner tools that they're fun to play with, but also I, I think that solution is uh, very elegant uh, and I like it. The other one that I like a lot is uh, it's called Euclid's solution. Um, and that one actually went through two stages. The original version of that chapter um, can just use math.gcd. So that solution is based on finding the greatest common denominator um, between a number and 15, which actually tells you uh, what the FizzBuzz answer should be. Um, and then originally the, it used math.gcd as the solution at the start of the chapter. And then at the end, there was a side note on, hey, here's Euclid's algorithm for how you actually might compute the GCD. Um, and then you know, after that chapter had been sitting on paper and in my brain for a while, I, I realized, what if I just made the invocation of Euclid's algorithm part of the solution itself? Um, and it turned out that that resulted in a very clean, very neat looking solution that um, that is not clear at all why it works. And so you see it, you say, wow, this looks so clean and simple and neat. And like, what is it doing? I have no idea. And, and so I kind of... Uh, I love that aspect of it. The, the, you know, there are other chapters in the book where the solution are like, I don't understand what this is doing, but they're kind of messy. Um, and the, the Euclid's one, it, it's just, it's very nice. I think particularly people who have uh, had a little discrete math in the past uh, will, will really enjoy that one. I think it's a, it's a fun way to remember some of that math. Um, so I want to wrap up and, and let people know where they can find this book. You have self-published it. Is that correct? Yeah, so for now it's on uh, LeanPub. I, I I couldn't think of a publisher who publishes weird books like this. So, um, and also I, I was feeling lazy, and it it would be a lot of work to to try and find a publisher, and, and I don't I don't have the mental space to do that. So I just threw it up on LeanPub, and uh, uh, people can buy it there if they want. So, but the the URL that you can go to is just fizzbuzzbook.com, um, and that will take you to the books page. And that for now is just an ebook form. It is just an ebook form. I, I've thought about getting it printed and doing like create space on Amazon, but I haven't. Uh, I haven't pulled the trigger, and I haven't invested in that yet. Maybe, uh, maybe once I get my taxes finished. I, I've been, uh, I think, really uh, glowing about this book this whole discussion and on Twitter. But I, I really do love this book. I didn't get any kickbacks from Joel for. Uh, reviewing it for him or promoting it for him. But uh, this is one of the most delightful things I've read in a long time. And I, I thank you, Joel, for writing it. And I hope other people will will read it. Yeah. Well, th- th- thanks for all your kind words. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks for your, you know, your help during the reviewing process. You know, many, many of your suggestions made the book a better book. So where, where can people find you? Again, the book is at fizzbuzzbook.com. Uh, you can find it that way. You can find me on Twitter at Joel Gruss. That's J-O-E-L-G-R-U-S. Um, you can see my website at joelgruss.com. Uh, I have a blog that gets updated about once a year, um, and I just updated it about the FizzBuzz book, so it probably won't be updated again for another year or so. Um, and then I, I have my own podcast, uh, which Tim has actually been a guest on uh, multiple times, uh, with Andrew Musselman called Adversarial Learning, and you can find that one at 
adversariallearning.com. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, as part of making this book, I've been putting out uh, a video per chapter. So it's called 10 Videos on FizzBuzz. And so you can find that either from my Twitter or go on YouTube and search for 10 videos on FizzBuzz and you'll find them. And they're pretty good. Um, Someone who watched the first one told me they had no idea I was such a good actor because I I play both the interviewer and the interviewee. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I asked my daughter, do do they seem like different people in the video? And she said, yeah, they seem like different people. So, you know, that's a, I I don't know that I'm a good actor, but uh, I'm good enough that they seem like different people. So that's good. And I'm Tim Hopper. You can find me at TD Hopper on Twitter or tdhopper.com. And I want to thank you all for listening to Into the Hopper podcast, episode two. 